You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. This is our third installment of Comrades Read Together, where we're reading No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age by Jane McLeavy. If you're a fan of the show and would like to support us, you can do so now by becoming a LaborWave patron. You can choose to be either a rank and filer, a committee member, or a strike captain, all at patreon.com backslash LaborWave. And for each of our patrons, we have some cool gifts, including original stickers, illustrated zines, and custom-made t-shirts. So check out all that cool stuff. And we also have upcoming episodes on elite capture and identity politics with Olufemi Tylo. And we're going to be continuing to conclude these conversations on No Shortcuts, where we dig into chapters 5, 6, and the conclusion. All that coming up on Labor Wave Radio. I'm really happy to do the third episode in what I decided to start calling Comrades Read Together, because I couldn't come up with a cleverer title than that. I'm joined by Ellen Kress and Andrea Haverkamp. So first thing I want to do before we dig into chapters three and four of No Shortcuts by Jane McLevy is like let my guests and comrades introduce themselves. So Ellen, first time on the show. Can you tell us something about you? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm down at the University of Oregon. I'm with the Graduate Teaching Fellows Federation. I was the ex. I am the ex president of the GTFF. I was on their executive board for three years. Started out as a steward in the theater department, and now here we are. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And when you say ex president, that's like on your terms, right? You served your term as oh, yes. the former president. <laughs> No drama. No drama. No, we're, we're a good, healthy union, and we hand over leadership every single year. And before we let Andrea introduce uh, herself, I'll just say that I had the privilege and ability to kind of see from a little bit of a short distance all of the great organizing work of GTFF. And I think of all the local unions I know of, they probably are the case study that really embodies all the arguments of Jane McLevy in this book talk about structure tests and deep organizing and high participation bargaining. GTFF really kicked ass on all those fronts. So kudos to you all. (laughs) Thanks. Again, it was a long, arduous process, uh, three whole years of getting people ready for right to work and getting people ready for bargaining and getting people to buy in and all that good stuff. So happy to talk more about that, but I don't want to shortchange Andrea's intro. (laughs) And if folks listen to the show regularly, they probably will hear Andrea's voice and it'll sound familiar to them. But Andrea, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself too? Nothing to shortchange because hopefully if they've listened to episode one, they are familiar. I am the president of CGE just north of y'all in Corvallis, Oregon. And uh, I have to echo that I feel like a lot of times our union really looks uh, to strategy and organizing that GTFF does in Eugene. And a lot of times, yeah, we definitely draw a lot of inspiration from the way y'all really organize and get that high participation. And so, you know, we've been working on 
again, taking lessons from this book and trying to integrate it into our union's organizing as we build stronger after this bargaining year, hoping to keep the momentum up as it is surely not all settled between now and 2024. The way we've been doing these is we've been taking them two chapters at a time and just having folks get together, read the chapters and discuss the kind of key highlights for them, their biggest takeaways, and really just use it as a launching pad to go into conversation wherever we want to go. We also had a second episode that was a one-on-one with Nick Dreger, and he offered a critical review of the book. And if you all weren't able to listen to that prior, because that just was published earlier today as of this recording... His main critiques of the book was his concern about the political horizons that it kind of fell within, basically arguing that McAlevey's approach tries to take the machine of business unions and break that model within a labor relations framework. And his argument ultimately is that that can't really succeed at the end of the day because the labor relations framework will ultimately win out and keep reproducing the same problems that McAlevey is actually identifying are, you know, the existing problems in the first place. Interesting take. There was a lot to that, his argument, so I don't want to like say that's all he had to say. <laughs> but that was what he said. I thought what would be good going into chapters three and four is maybe we should take it chapter at a time. And if either of you all are willing to give like a summary or a brief review of what's in the chapters, we could start off there. I actually read chapter four, so I'll do chapter four. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Andrea, you said that chapter three really resonated. Would you mind giving our listeners kind of a summary of the contents there? Yeah, I spent a lot of time actually reading this in Eugene. My dog actually just went to a vet specialist there. So I had some good, quiet, pensive time parked uh, under a tree, really digging through uh, chapter three. And Jane uses a great case study of two different nursing home unions within SEIU presently as uh, really goes through the whole history of each different local, uh, SEIU Local 775 and SEIU 1199 New England, and just shows how even within the same national union, you can have two radically different approaches and results of organizing on the ground and also just charts the trajectory of each of those unions and how they got there. So while not completely stating that it just happened today, you know, kind of shows how really her her whole argument of strategy, how that strategy leads to where we are today and how changes in that strategy can move on. 775 is in primarily based in Washington, and it is largely, as the title says, a class snuggle right, SEIU nationally, working closely with the employer to make sure that the workers have no strike clauses and that their wages aren't too high, that it doesn't cause a financial loss. And the, the main thing is, is it was a big push to get more members to boost the numbers of SEIU rather than in 1199 New England, which has a very deep organizing approach focused in its members, having overall better contracts, better wages, better conditions from a bottom-up, deep organizing approach. And then they kind of fell into the SEIU fold instead of being spearheaded by the National Union. There's a lot of good stuff in there, so I'm sure I missed a lot, but that's my Cliff Notes take of what Chapter 3 presents to us. So one of the, the really cool things about that chapter is the list of commandments for organizers. What is that on page 
<laughs> Page 90. Ooh, citations. A very fancy grad student. <laughs> Which edition are you using? I guess, <laughs> I guess my 2016 edition. Oh, the hardback. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this is a welcome to the eboard gift from Marchman three years ago. So. And that's a reference to Michael Marchman, the staff organizer for GTFF. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know what page y'all are on, but um, the, the advice for rookie organizers is probably one of the most important list of things that you can go through as an organizer, as a member, as somebody who's like really activated and wants to do things, right? I think this list, if you are thoroughly invested in becoming an organizer, this is what's going to take you from being an activist, somebody who's really excited, or as I like to say, hot to trot, and into actual deep organizing. So some of my favorite ones are like, get close to the workers, stay close to the workers. And McAlevey brings up the idea that SEIU does that in their campaigns and in their card drives, all that kind of thing. And then once they've gotten all of what they need, which is the member cards, then they drop out from a local or a union and they are no longer close to the workers. Like that's really important. And as a grad organizer, as somebody who is actually a worker, that's probably actually a little bit easier for us for our our perspective because we are there on the ground as grad employees sharing and experiencing all the same things. There might be an interesting challenge for grad employees to get other grad employees to see you as a fellow worker in a way that a professional organizer from SEIU being airdropped into a local has the opposite issue, if that makes sense. 100%. I mean, that's one of the, that's kind of the ideological power of the academy, right? Is bracketing who is a real worker and who's not. And graduate work, student workers are often in the position of feeling more like they're supposed to be an intern, like an apprentice to a real job. So currently they're just going through the grinder and they're not actually, you know, doing real workers. They're just like furthering their career. I mean, that's the argument that the universities make themselves when arguing against allowing graduate student workers to unionize, is that they're not real workers. They're just like furthering their academic career. So I could totally understand what you're saying about like that kind of crisis of confidence, I guess, that some grad students might have in terms of like thinking of themselves as a worker and seeing you as a fellow worker. I really like the advice for rookie organizers too. And I was kind of hoping like we could read them. Uh, just for folks that maybe don't have the book in front of them because the advice for rookie organizers and the semantics drills are probably my favorite but i'm also weird that way and that i really like to focus on the the mechanics i'm going to run people through the semantics drills soon enough what do you think should we go like around the horn one at a time do you all have the nice little handwritten version at the front of the book that's really kind of nice that's like the copied off-copied, often-loved version uh, from advice from workers, rookie organizers. And that's kind of cool to see the the legacy of like, these are literally just handwritten notes of people just trying their best, right? And so I agree. Let's read them. I'm a theater major, so I always love a good dramatic reading. (laughs) What do you want to kick us off with number one, which you already said was probably your favorite? Yup. Here's my favorite. All right. Number one, advice for rookie organizers. Number one, get close to the workers, stay close to the workers. Two is tell workers it's their union and then behave that way. Number three, don't do for workers 
what they can do. Number four, the union is not a fee for service. It is the collective experience of workers in struggle. Number five, the union's function is to assist workers in making a positive change in their lives. Number six, workers are made of clay, not glass. Number seven, don't be afraid to ask workers to build their own union. Number eight, don't be afraid to confront them when they don't. (laughs) (laughs) Number nine, don't spend your time organizing workers who are already organizing themselves. Go to the biggest worst. Yeah, that's a good advice. I love the biggest worst because we all know exactly where the biggest worst is. Yeah. (laughs) Individual collective uh, organizing struggles right now. Uh, Number 10, uh, the working class builds cells for its own defense, identify them, and recruit their leaders. Number 11, anger is there before you are. Channel it. Don't diffuse it. Number 12, channeled anger builds a fighting organization. Number 13, workers know their risks. Don't lie to them. Yeah, I think that one's really important too when we get stuck in these labor relations frameworks because something I've found other folks want to lean on is like, the law says this, you're protected by the law. They can't do that. I'm like, how many of us have to be reminded that bosses break the law all the fucking time? Anyway, I won't. I won't pontificate too much here. Uh, which number are we on? <laughs> uh, the theatery one, number 14. Okay, number 14. Every worker is showtime. Communicate energy, excitement, urgency, and confidence. And the razzle-dazzle. And, and y'all, number 15, I loved so much that I underlined it furiously. Number 15. There is enough oppression in workers' lives not to be oppressed by organizers. <laughs> Love that one. <laughs> Number 16, who isn't all guilty of this? Organizers talk too much. Most of what you say is forgotten. <laughs> yeah, I'm still working on that. <laughs> hence, hence this podcast. This is my outlet <laughs> to talk too much. <laughs> Number 17. Communicate to workers that there is no salvation beyond their own power. By the way, I literally said this the other day in a training with some workers. I found myself saying, you have no salvation beyond your collective power. I'm like, where did I come up with those words? I must, I realized rereading this that that's where that came from. 18, workers united can beat the boss. You have to believe that. And so do they. Number 19, don't underestimate the workers. And then the last one is number 20, we lose when we don't put workers into struggle. Okay, so maybe that was boring for listeners to <laughs> as we read all this, but I really love those advice for working organizers. And I thought it might be fun to kind of pick out a few that, we, that really resonate with us just talking about why. So Andrea, you said that you underlined one that you like so much. I believe that you said it was the, there's already enough oppression in workers' lives. They don't need to be oppressed by organizers. Why did that one resonate for you? I think in, in uh, my, myself, if, if I have to dream of what I hope is a career, like organizing until, uh, I guess I can't organize the funeral home when I get there, right? But I want to keep organizing. <laughs> but, but one thing is, is that there's so much going on in workers' lives, especially once you reach the role of a staff or a state or national, like, you know, when you rise up the ranks of organizer, 
right? There's a lot of uh, power dynamics at play. And the organizer cannot be one further element of oppression, whether it is an organizer working with local leaders, whether it is through their words, whether it is, you know, there are some, just like if you go online and you read education forums, if you're a teacher, don't. It's just teachers saying, oh, these students are terrible. You know, there's some organizers out there that I'm sure, you know, come around and they, they, they don't view workers as, as equals. This is just my own, from what I've read, from what some people have said, some, not all organizers realize that they need to not oppress the workers, whether it is materially, socially. Yeah, I guess, does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's like, don't, no longer be the source, like be a solution to the problem, not more of the problem, right? Yeah. And sometimes it's unintentional and becoming a really good organizer is realizing when you've hurt somebody or you've oppressed someone or you're contributing to the problem and saying, hey, I've, I've messed up. I am so sorry. What can I do to make it better? Or here's how I'm going to make it better, right? I think part of being a good organizer is not necessarily being like so gung-ho all the time and having all the answers, right? The idea is you're, you're a good guide. And you're also human and you can model being a human as well for people. Well, and I think it also can be very intentional many times too. Like what I like about McLevy's discussion of this is how she really emphasizes that the advice for rookie organizers generated by 1199 New England says behave that way. Like the emphasis is on behave, not just pretend, right? In her words. So it's like we have to like abide by these rules and actually behave in the way that we understand that the the union is for the workers. And I think in my vantage point is like having been able to do like the staff side of things, you're in a position often to literally manipulate situations. That's like part of the job, right? Is manipulation. Uh, and I don't think that that like in and of itself is necessarily a bad thing, but you're in a position to like guard knowledge potentially to manipulate scenarios and situations. And you could do that very unaccountably. You could do that in a way that really cuts out the power of workers. You could also try to do it in a way that like furthers the power of workers and even uh, empowers those workers that need it most that are like dealing with multiple oppressions. So this is like, um, for me, it's one of those mandates that I strive towards and I think is very, very difficult to embody because it's so easy to like just guard your power unaccountably as a staff person. I want the power. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're a staff person. That's why you're an organizer. You're here to consolidate power. No. <laughs> well, and, and I feel like, I feel like for me, number 15, like just echoed through so many things. Like when you're underestimating the workers, that is not believing of them. I mean, that feels oppressive. Uh, workers know the risk, don't lie to them. That feels a little oppressive to be dishonest or to treat it as a numbers game for, um, you know, for your state or for your national instead of that deep organizing in rooting yourself in a collective struggle. Anyway, what were some of y'all's other favorites? I mean, there's a lot of good stuff there. I'm really, I guess it's really funny that Alex is like, oh, I said this the other day in a meeting, but I think this is so important. Uh, is number, oh no, is number 17 again, communicate to workers that there's no salvation beyond their own power, right? There is no system in which we go to the right lawyer and we file the right lawsuit and we become suddenly powerful, right? There's no one here to save ourselves, right? (laughs) Only we can save ourselves. 
I think a big part of an organizer's job is to make people feel empowered again in a, in a system where they just have to show up to work and they unfairly get told what to do and unfairly told how to dress and all these things. And an organizer is there to say, hey, actually, if you don't want to do that, um, you have the power collectively to change that, right? But you all have to decide, right? And that's the the big the big scary big question, right? The ask where you say, are you going to join us or not? Are you going to um, do something about it or not, right? And I think that's a big big lesson to learn. It's a tricky one too in practice because sometimes I feel like when you try to communicate this, you come off more subversive than you're trying to be. But when you're like going around telling people like the law doesn't fucking matter, the boss will just break the laws. No, a lawyer is not going to save you. Like you have to save yourselves. Like it comes across as maybe more anarchistic than I even want to be in the moments that I'm trying to invoke this. But I think it's really important because like servicing grievances, that process is uh, revealed for me how often people have just an overconfidence in the process, right? That the process will work, that reform is possible within the process. And I think that this is one of those rules that shows like we have to be willing to wield power collectively and go outside those frameworks that are constricting us. There's a really great, I know this is not the book that we're talking about, but her other book, well now she has two books, other than No Shortcuts, but in Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, the prologue was so stuck out to me. So in the prologue, um, Jane talks about how she was part of the recount in Florida uh, between Gore and Bush. So we're talking about hanging chads, we're talking about 2000, right? All the way back throwing it back to then. And she talks about how the Democrats had such a faith in the process. Meanwhile, the Republicans are mobilizing and creating this national narrative around saying, oh, the Democrats are trying to steal the election, all of these things. And Jane's like, we need to do something like that. We need to do this. We need to have people who feel empowered to say stuff and, and be there and be on the streets. And like you said, you uh, in an earlier episode talking about uh, tactics, uh, mobilizing his tactics, like they, they needed to do that in that moment. But because they lost the national narrative, uh, the Democrats lost the that election because they had too much faith in the quote-unquote process that was going to save them all. And I am so worried, side note, that this is going to happen again in November. I think you're 100% right. I mean, this is still the playbook, right? The Republicans don't fucking care about the process and like honoring the rules. And the Democrats still play this like political decorum game where they have to like show that they believe in the system. And I don't know how much they actually do. I think it's probably, it's all just pageantry, but that's still the way they act. And it's incredibly infuriating when you see like that the right-wing political party doesn't give a damn about following the rules so long as they win. I don't think it's a tangent either. I, I, this is what we should want to do, like go wherever we want, right? Right. I mean, uh, Dave, I think a, Dave Sir, Sir, I, I'm not pronouncing his name right, the old campaign chair for Bernie Sanders, uh, David Sirota, Sirota? did a tweet recently that was really good. That was like, so if Democrats win the presidency, they are going to grant statehood to Puerto Rico and DC to pick up four more Senate seats and expand the democratic voting base. Or, or do they not care about the deep structure of obtaining power? 
And I thought that that was a really good critique, right? Like what would hypothetically, like this whole rules and process thing, right? You got one side that's aggressively pulling no punches to obtain power and really solidify that base. And I read that. And of course, like the implication is that they don't believe that if the Democrats win, they'll immediately try to use any majority they have to get two more states into the union and to do that. So, yeah, I think that the the power is definitely not in theatrics or, you know, permit permitted protests, but that really all tactics have to be on the table because like the the law is not here to prevent harm. It's to regulate and mitigate it, but not prevent. Becoming ungovernable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, again, the idea of the system and then the system is we're going to put our faith into the system. And it was like, Throughout our entire 18-month bargaining process, it felt like we were fighting the university with not just one arm tied behind our backs, but two arms tied behind our backs with all of the regulations and all of the different labor laws that we had to follow. And we had to constantly be talking to lawyers and paying for that and all these sorts of things. And it was like incredible how much not only were we up against the admin or the university, but against the very structure that we find ourselves in. Only people are saving us or ourselves. <laughs> yeah. And this was actually Nick Dreger's kind of critical take on the bargaining for the common good and high participation model that McAleve champions is that it's limited in that it ultimately falls within a labor relations framework. Because, yeah, you can like build these big bargaining teams, you can do this big approach, and you can be militant in your demands. But at the end of the day, you still have to come to a compromise. And in compromising, what you end up doing is often like making concessions for the big items so that you can get kind of medium tier and lower tier items and like make a little bit better than incremental gains. That's kind of like where he's coming from. But Ellen, you had some real like direct hands-on experience and with this approach, I want to know if you're willing to like maybe share more about, you know, how that went for you all. Like how, like you just said, it was constricting to a degree, but I know that from a distance too, you also did a lot of great organizing through that approach. So what went well and what didn't go well? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> our big uh, McAlevey uh, experiment that we had, for sure, that I think we're going to continue to refine and replicate. So I'm one of the few people who's left, who's a graduate employee in the GTFF, who experienced the strike, the big strike in uh, 2014. It was fall term. It was my first term here. So they're like, congratulations, you're part of unionized labor. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. And then the next meeting, they're like, congratulations, we're all going on strike. So it was very incredibly trial by fire. But our old model was the five to eight different people who decided to be on the bargaining team with the president. And then the uh, staff organizer was actually the lead negotiator. And it was fine. We can make compromises and concessions and the strike the resulting strike in 2014 was it was complicated in that it, people were divided over what we were going over strike on and all those sorts of things. But we get into this last bargaining session, which started in 2018, 2017. Uh, and we decide to do the big, large, transparent bargaining team that Jane McAlevey always advocates for. And so we decided on 20 to 25 members for our 1500 member unit. We had uh, representatives from natural sciences, social sciences, arts and ed, and humanities. And then 
as many caucus chairs or caucus representatives we could have as possible, which we are trying to build basically a represent representative sample of our bargaining unit. And in some ways, having a big team is great because we had lots of eyeballs on things. And in other ways, because we had so many eyeballs on things, we had to take time and be deliberative and organize a structure of consensus and of decision making before we could even get to making decisions. And all of this was on a very compressed timeline. On the meanwhile, I wasn't actually part of the bargaining team until I took over as president. So that's really fun, taking over as president right in the middle of bargaining. <laughs> Not recommended. <laughs> Did okay. Um, because we had thrown so much resources and so many brains and so many different points of view into our bargaining team. I think what had suffered a little bit was our contract action team, which was the external organizing mechanism that helped support what the bargaining team was trying to do. Because at the end of the day, you could be the smartest people in the room. You could have 25 of the smartest people in the room, but the admin is not going to care unless you make them care. And you're not going to make them care with really brilliant arguments. You're going to make them care by making a mess for them, uh, either publicly on social media, um, having lots of rallies and doing all those sorts of things, right? And so because we had a large team on bargaining, contradiction was a little bit iffy, wishy-washy, but we definitely were focused on making sure that we had the membership and the membership numbers and the people who were the stewards talking to people in their departments. And so through this whole process, we ended up at like an 83, 84% membership, which historically is like the highest it's been. And we made sure that we had stewards who were like ready to go and who could uh, convey all of this complicated bargaining shenanigans to um, their members, right? Because at the end of the day, it, we're all still stressed out grad students who all have 20 hour jobs and have to finish papers and finish comps and write dissertations and all these things on top of deciding to bargain for the greater good of our comrades and our colleagues. So <laughs> it was, I mean, you know, we're, we're all trying our best. I think one of the things that I see as a very specific challenge for grad unions is the idea of institutional memory, right? So as grad employees, our entire bargaining unit turns over every six to seven years, right? So if I leave, then it's basically a whole brand new group of people. And we, you see a lot of learning a lot of the same issues, a lot of mistakes, but also a lot of the same triumphs. So I'm trying to think through a good way to keep institutional memory in an organization like this. So when we go into bargaining the next time, and we learn all of these different tips and tactics and tricks with a giant bargaining team that we can actually recreate it without recreating the wheel, right? So um, I went off on a spiel. I don't know if that's... <laughs> no, I think that was all really great and informative. <laughs> good, good. What I was curious about as you're speaking is, you know, so the internal organizing were processes that could be controlled right? Internal to the union itself. So there's like a certain level of like autonomy and agency that you have to like hunker down, do deep organizing, be democratic, be accountable, have high participation. And you all did all of that, right? 
80 plus percent membership density, pretty wild in a graduate employee union. That's, that's nothing to sneeze at. Doing grad organizing myself, like there are some people that don't even live in the same area as everybody else on the campus. There are some people locked behind security doors. Like there's so much there, like kind of making it difficult to get density. And I, I got to witness your team passing proposals, being really smart. My memory was like 40 proposals were thrown on the table on day one of negotiations. So it was just like, you know, turning them out. But at the end of the day, there was still like a labor relations framework that people were beholden to. And I'm kind of wondering like how stifling was that framework, particularly for folks that I I could see and talk to were much more desiring of being militant and radical and wanted to just say, wildcat the fuck out of this. (laughs) Let's just be done with it. Yeah. One of the things that really hampered our uh, progress and our momentum and our organizing was we called for mediation about halfway through our bargaining. And what mediation is, instead of having these large, open, transparent bargaining sessions where all 20 of us are at the bargaining table surrounded by 120, 140 of our peers, which is like 10% of our bargaining unit on a work day on a Friday, right? That's pretty impressive. Instead of doing that, when we call for mediation, we go into the mystical, magical locked rooms that we all like to talk about, where our bargaining team's in one room, uh, admin's bargaining team is in another room, and we have a mediator shuttling proposals back and forth. And every once in a while, we can get the admins to like kind of peek out of their nests and talk to them. And then we say something scary, and then they get mad at us, and then they kind of disappear back into... <laughs> Their little admin rooms, right? (laughs) And so part of that then was we were experiencing the same types of rage-inducing, belittling, and dehumanizing from the administration team in this small locked room. And then we had that challenge of recreating that embodied visceral experience of not being valued as a human to the rest of the bargaining unit in a way that it just it was just paled in comparison and translation. And so instead of everybody sitting around in the room listening to Missy Matella, who's the head of the administration, say, oh, we all think you have Cadillac health insurance and like immediately inducing this like rage, this rage, the righteous anger in 10% of our bargaining unit. Instead, we're sitting in this mediation room hearing all these things and then have to like figure out how to recreate that experience to get people still fired up and ready to go. So I think that was to me, one of the like hardest challenges is when we were calling for mediation because that was on the road to a uh, strike. Ooh, the S word, scary. Um, <laughs> uh, to settling and then a strike. It really, it really destroyed our momentum organizing wise. What you were saying too about like, just joking about the strike word being scary. It, it brings me back to like chapter three where, and she says it in chapters one and two as well, McLevy is really adamant about the need for unions to prepare for strikes at any moment, like always prepare and build for a strike and use it early in the campaign. Like I, I can't remember if it's chapter three or not where she says that, but she says somewhere in the book that at the very beginning of a new unionizing campaign, you need to start talking about the need to build to a strike capacity then so that it's not some kind of taboo word later for workers. And to me, that's like scary stuff. <laughs> like, uh, so many people are trying to tiptoe around the strike word at any given moment. And like, this is all the way down. 
it's a, it's like a self-censoring thing. I, I feel like we're don't really know if you want to throw that word out there. I don't know, Andrew, what do you think? I mean, we saw how effective just even the specter of calling of a, a strike vote was in Chicago just this year regarding online teaching versus remote teaching like that itself already shows its efficacy and right without the like majority of workers that you have on board that you're engaged with that you're deeply organized with who know the risks who know that they have each other's backs yeah you just don't have because what's the university in our context what's the university going to do if they get you know 10 emails 100 emails a thousand emails it doesn't interrupt the day-to-day operations of their profit, of their revenue, and of keeping every single thing going. And right, and we see even how effective just other great recent pandemic news, like uh, the UC California um, Wildcat Strikers, who got their positions back, and everyone got—I forget the percentage—but it's it's like double-digit percentage of what their annual income is as a housing stipend. So like it's it's effective and it's not to say that it's the only effective tool, but being prepared and having everyone know the risks involved and that our our power, if workers are the ones who have that power of salvation, what is that power? It could be the best email in the world world, but it's 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 your labor that they want from you in exchange for wages. And as teachers, as educators, we know that. And that is our tool. So I love that. I think it's just down to the basics. If we look historically, if we look presently and into the future, it's really where the power is. And it needs to be not such a scary word, right? It should be, it's like, you know, they say, you know, it's like a muscle that needs to be flexed. Yeah, it should just be a, ra- a routine thing that we don't want to do anything when it feels bad or unfair as humans. It just feels like a natural human instinct to go on strike. Well, Andrea, you and, I, you and I were talking about um, a mutual friend who used to live in France and how he would just always wax poetic about like, well, in France, if anything happened, this is how the unions would respond. And just talk about how like it was like a ritual almost just going on strike with regularity, uh, which is true of a lot of these unions. They like go on like annual strikes just to demonstrate the power of being able to do so and like how much um, disruptive power they have. And strikes do happen in the United States more frequently than people know, I think. But it is definitely true at the same time that they don't happen enough, they're not frequent enough, and they're not like massive enough. And that is something we need to get back to. Yeah, I was reading. Oh, gosh. It, you know, it's a sign of the times when everyone's like, oh, I read something. I don't exactly know where it was. <laughs> but okay, right? So with that being the, the flimsiest qualifier, I remember reading an article about general strikes and uh, uh, the sort of like fetishization of the general strike in the United States, right? Like, if only everyone could just get off the job. Well, right. Like, not only is that a massive undertaking, but they used the case study of looking at all of the widespread general strikes and other strikes across Europe. And they find that the power is in a long, sustained strike. And it makes me think of the uh, Haggadah we used at our recent Passover, which was by the organization Judas in the UK. And they had like the 10 plagues against the landlord. And like at the very end was an indefinite red strike and with everyone occupying the buildings. The application of both of those together is that it's so good to just practice it. Even if it's a one-day strike, practice it. Because what is really effective 
is not even just as a holiday, but like what 1199 is able to do, which is be able to walk the job off the job for good until things are met for not even over the biggest things, but over things that matter, anything that matters. So, you know, not trying to not trying to walk the line of like, oh gosh, the general strike will be the greatest thing in the world whenever it happens or sort of like strike as spectacle, but strike as long sustained relationship. I think the article you're talking about was with one of our labor wave guests in the past, Marion Garneau, because she wrote about the effects of general strikes and measure that. Is, am I right? Was it on organizing work? I think that must have been that, yeah. I think what was really interesting about the S word or the strike word on campus, the University of Oregon, was just what people don't know what a strike is, right? So we'd have a rally or we'd have an informational picket where we would basically have a little bit of a a model or a a fake actual picket uh, where we would hand out information and say, hey, this is what we're going to look like when we go on strike. Um, Will you support us, right? And people thought that every time we had a rally out in front of Johnson Hall or did an informational picket that we were literally on strike. And so I think that actually speaks volumes to where we are in terms of like no one has any kind of labor knowledge or history or learn what a strike is. And I think Andrew was talking about the general strike being fetishized. And sometimes people just fetishize the strike without realizing like it's a tool to get the thing that we want as workers. It's not just us going off again on holiday or going and standing in front of the boss's office for a day because we want to. Like it's a thing that we use. It's our escalated tactic. It's the top of the mountain to say, okay, now we're withholding our labor because X, Y, and Z. I think a lot of people don't realize or haven't learned enough or don't have enough experiences with strikes to figure out or understand the because X, Y, and Z part, right? And I and I think that was really interesting to see how the community reacted to every time we would do some kind of rally or action or those sorts of things. Because people are like, oh, okay, well, the GEs are on strike now. Cool. Like, we don't have class, right? Um, <laughs> so I think that was also part of it was part of our organizing strategy was Uh, educating ourselves, educating our new workers, educating everybody who's been there, and also educating the community to say, like, this is what we're doing. This is why we are doing this. We are doing this because we care about our students, not just because we want to not work for a week. So that was, I think, a really interesting experience. What you said made made me think about our contract. We have a no strike clause. And as we opened up the recent bargaining, right, we handed over our worker protections. And of course, we wanted to get rid of the no strike clause. And that's an issue that they won't back down from. And if talk about a structure test and talk about like the ultimate hurdle is we would have to strike to get a contract without a no strike clause. I guarantee, gosh, darn see it. Or at least a credible threat. And our inability to remove the no strike clause to me showed that we have more work to do the next time it goes around to make them know like we're gonna keep that strike clause but until then it's it's you know even if we had it would we be able to use it i don't know it what you may what you said made me think about no strike clauses just in general right like why would they want a no strike clause if strikes weren't effective i mean the history of the wagner act and the amendments to it are all the, like, you can read the letter of the law. They're all about stopping the proliferation of strikes and, like, economic disruptions. 
I mean, this is like the language that they're using. They're like, we want to create labor peace through collective bargaining and minimize the prevalence of strikes in this country. So we're creating the NLRB. And that's, again, the labor relations framework kind of imposing a stricture on unions. And I think the question that I ruminate on and our guest previously, Nick Dreger, was asking is like, how do you break out of it? And how do you break out of it as, I guess, twofold for him? One is like through radical independent unions like the IWW. The other is like internal to the mainstream, quote unquote, business unions themselves. How do they break out of that structure? And wildcat strikes could be one of the ways, like Andrea is suggesting, is like striking under the terms of your own contract to break that contract and replace it with a better contract. Might be something to that. Lots of structure tests up to then, though. (laughs) That's all I can think of. One thing we're talking about with strikes, though, reminds me of, it's like a little bit of a tangent, but it's in the realm of strikes, is, well, one thing you were saying, Ellen, is that for me, like strikes are didactic, right? Strikes are educational. And organizing is a process of like educating through struggle. I've been accused by one of my friends of being a part of the action faction, where I'm like, action is prior to thought. These good ideas, like who cares? When you actually like commit to struggle, you'll learn a lot and a lot more. That's kind of a tangent. The thing that I get frustrated with is how much I see mainstream unions build capacity towards a strike, agitate memberships towards a strike, even get these massive uh, strike authorization approvals from their membership, like 90 plus percent, and then they don't go on strike. Um, And sometimes I think that's like, it's a calculated risk, right? But like when you have that capacity and you don't utilize it, to me, it creates this like phenomenon of crying strike wolf all the time. And it's like, how many times is this game going to work? I saw one, not trying to throw any unions under the bus. I saw one specific local union claim that they were going on strike and even authorized strike votes every round of negotiations for 10 straight years that I was like around this union, at least 10 years, I think it goes back. Every time they said they were going on strike and it was like every three years and the membership would get agitated, then they would be apathetic in between times and you get them back to agitation level. And to me, I'm like, how could a worker at a certain point not hear their union representatives come back to them like, well, this time we're really going on strike and it's serious. And by the way, we got 95% approval to go on strike. And then like, never mind, we're not because we got that 2% COLA. How long is that going to last? Like, it's, it's infuriating to me. Strike wolf. I'm going to get that in the lexicon more. <laughs> Don't cry strike wolf. Yeah. I mean, so this last fall was really interesting uh, in, in terms of labor in Oregon, for sure, because we had, so SEIU, which uh, represents the staff on all of the university campuses were like two days from a strike. And uh, UCFW, which was the Fred Meyer, they were like weeks from a strike as well. And we were days from a strike. So there was all of this pent up energy and aggression. And people are going like, let's go. Let's go against the admin or go against the bosses. And then suddenly it goes right, right out of the room. And so it was really surreal to be in the middle of our own bargaining struggle, but also in the middle of this sort of larger struggle for workers in Oregon. And I wish somebody had got on strike because <laughs> we all would have shown up because we were all freaking ready. We were all so ready. I think we had an interesting motivator for a lot of workers on campus for the graduate employees because the university signaled in no uncertain terms that they were coming after our really incredible health insurance. And like, 
don't know if your listeners know at home, but graduate employees don't get paid a lot of money. Um, <laughs> we have really incredible health insurance, which is union bargained and union protected and union run. And we were on a defensive fight protecting that really incredible health insurance, which affects every single person from the natural sciences, social sciences, arts and admin, humanities, everybody on campus uses health insurance, right? And so we had a really great nugget to create our struggle narrative around, which was a double-edged sword because once we got the health insurance ask, we were like, oh no, what do we do with all of the rest of our asks and our bargaining? Because everybody voted to authorize a strike perhaps about health insurance. Are we going to ask them to go out on strike for 0.25% of a COLA, right? Um, so that was the really tough decisions that we had to make in those last three or four days of bargaining that I'm sure everybody who was in their last three or four days of bargaining probably identifies with closely. Well, I'm realizing that we're yet to discuss the details of chapter four. So <laughs> this has been such a good conversation. <laughs> um, but all this talk about strikes reminds me of chapter four which is about the Chicago Teachers Union, when we've already mentioned them once in this episode. But Ellen, I'm wondering if I could put you on the spot since you did your homework <laughs> and give us a summary of chapter four. Yeah. Um, all right. Cool. Yeah, I should have not bragged that I read did the homework. But um, you so the oldest trap in the book. Don't be the student who raised their hand and said, I did the homework. <laughs> 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 not trying to recreate the classroom. Anyway. Okay, chapter four is a really great case study about building capacity in a very, very short amount of time from in a union, a large union, a large local um, that had for 20 years or so not experienced any kind of power. And then suddenly rank and file decides, okay, it's actually time. We're going to build all of these really great uh, community coalitions and include the students and include the parents and include everybody who has a child in these um, school systems to really build power and capacity to take on neoliberalization, the corporatization of public school by introducing charter schools into the system, right? And so this is 2012, which I think kicks off this resurgence of strikes in the United States. And suddenly you see a whole school system in Chicago, these teachers and these parents and this community organizations stand up and say, you know what, enough is enough. Um, and we're going to take back our power. We're going to advocate for every student in these schools. And I think it's a really exciting analysis because it's Jane on the outside looking at this analysis of this local. It's a really good transparent look at how internal union politics can get in its own way. You see these different slates that are fighting with each other and you see the incumbent power and how the president can talk a good talk, but not necessarily uh, back it up with anything. And you see the labor relations where now the name of the game for the union is to get along with the school board or the CEO uh, instead of actually standing up to the CEO. And it's a great transparent analysis of watching this rank and file group move up through their ranks and become the leadership. And McAlevey, I think, brings a really interesting question to 
how can you as a rank and filer who then becomes leadership, how can you avoid the traps of high leadership, right? How do you become, avoid becoming the very thing that you became activated against in the first place? And I think that's a big, big question, especially a lot for a lot of activists who then move up into leadership and then move up into higher leadership and then the highest leadership. Like, how do you resist that urge to, oh, well, this just one time, we'll, we'll, we'll hang out with the management and we'll, we'll solve this here instead of solving it out in the open, right? And so I think that's one of the more valuable lessons in this chapter is her analysis of what those power structures look like and how you can fight against them, but then also fight against in yourself replicating those structures. I remember when I had read this that the it's one of those moments where McLeavy really pushes her argument that the iron law of oligarchy, this idea that Robert Mitchell's put forward is false. And she says that it's one of these assumptions that like passes for like scientific evidence in a lot of radical circles and like social sciences that this thing of the iron law of oligarchy will always manifest and reproduce itself. And Macleod just says, actually, there's opportunities to break out of like bureaucratic control, legal strictures, and create robust democracy. And I remember that in the Chicago Teachers Union example, she was really hammering that home. And it was really cool because it starts off with like, yeah, a group of teachers like you're talking about that like read the shock doctrine together <laughs> and understood the analysis of the shock doctrine as disaster capitalism that was also being wreaking havoc upon Chicago public schools and like the closures of public schools primarily in poor black neighborhoods. They identified the shock doctrine as happening there and then like use that analysis to create a slate and a platform and a caucus that ran from within and like ousted the old guard, brought in the new leadership and uh, committed to some deep organizing that ultimately led to them defeating through a strike the most powerful mayor in the whole country at the time, Rahm Emanuel scumbag, billionaire, whatever. If he's not a billionaire, whatever. There's a lot of villains in McLeavy's book, by the way. I'm realizing there's like a theme here. <laughs> Andy Stern is a villain. John Lewis is a villain. Saul is a villain. And now we have Ron Emanuel. Yeah, yeah. She's really incredible at creating the narratives that you stick to as like a, as a child where there's like, oh, it's good versus evil, right? And obviously Jane's on the good side and these are the evil people, right? And I think there's something so powerful and awesome about creating that narrative that makes her so compelling as a, re- as a writer that I just love. And the heroes are like the, the leaders of the Chicago Teachers mm-hmm. Union. Well, what is the name again? Karen Lewis, the president? Yes. Yeah. And Karen Lewis became so popular in the city of Chicago that had she been of health capable to run for mayor, was predicted to win against Rahm Emanuel. It's pretty remarkable to think about that, um, just how entrenched his power is, all the political clout he has. I mean, the, he was in the Obama administration, and a public school teachers union president was going to, was poised to defeat him in a mayoral race. That's remarkable. I'm trying to find the um, the exchange between Karen and Rom at the top where it's their first meeting, the behind closed doors meeting, because apparently there's swears allowed on this podcast. But uh, I think Andrea had something to say. <laughs> I'm going to keep looking for that and then we'll go back to it. I just get so excited about all this. I especially teachers unions and someone like 2012. Ellen, I think you said is when it ushered in a big wave of like activism and strikes 
And I think we're still writing that. Like, gosh, I feel like that was like a spark that made educators all across the country just really realize the incredible worth and value we have. And I think it's it's just kept going. Yeah, and they're still strong. And, you know, that that chapter really is such a premonition because it's called, you know, the Chicago Teachers Union, Building a Resilient Union. And to this day in the pandemic 2020, to go back, right, they're still resilient. They're still well-connected. They're still organized and they still see their value in this pandemic. And just even the thought of another strike sent the powers that be to allow them to teach remote. It's great. It's a good story arc. You love to see it. And that's why you don't cry strike wolf, right? Because they proved that they would go on strike and that they would win. And by proving that they could do demonstrate their strike power, now even the threat of a strike from them is enough, right? Just emphasizing my early argument. <laughs> and it's really exciting to see that it's actually, you can replicate it. It wasn't just some magical uh, group of people who just happened to have the right type of attitude after reading the shock doctrine. Like, UTLA took that playbook play by play and recreated it in Los Angeles, which is incredible and really exciting to me as a social scientist. Be like, oh, you can replicate that. And it's not just based off of the personalities who happen to want to change, right? It's like, it can be a structure that we can use to take back this power, which is really exciting. Did you find that dialogue full of curse words? We do suddenly like to curse on Labor Wave. I don't know where that started happening, but Maybe it's being on Zoom conference calls for <laughs> since March that I'm becoming even weirder and more agitated day by day. Yeah, yeah. So this is Ron Emanuel uh, just gets elected and he summons Karen Lewis to his shadowy mayor office. And he summoned Lewis to his office to discuss extending the school day. It was our first closed door meeting with the mayor. And what she did is she went and met with the mayor and then immediately left and all the media are like, what happened? And instead of being weird and cagey and not wanting to share what happened, Karen Lewis immediately was like, okay, well, here's, here's the exchange. Uh, Emmanuel said, well, what the fuck do you want? And Lewis said, more than you fucking got. And people were really angry that Emmanuel started off the cussing that a white man shouldn't talk to a black woman leader that way. And that they were really happy that Karen continued it, that Karen gave it back was just great. Yeah. Right. That's a pretty rad story. I remember <laughs> reading that too and was like, fuck yeah, right on. Could you imagine yourself in that scenario, like being called into the back room of like the mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, and his first thing to you is like, what the fuck do you want? I, I don't know. I just think it's pretty, um, it shows a lot of like conviction of character that Karen Lewis's immediate response was you know, the response that she had. More than you fucking get. I just imagine getting invited to the shadowy back realm of like Michael Schill, who's the president of the United States, United States. No. <laughs> Feels like it. Feels like it. No, Michael Schill, the president of the university of Oregon. <laughs> What do you think you would say to him if you got invited to that dark, shadowy room where all the real decisions are made? Oh, God. I don't even know what I'd say to him. Um, n nothing nice, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> he'd probably start out trying to be diplomatic, and I'd be like, okay, great. Well, we all know that you're our tiny man who has thin skin, so here you go. So, For listeners that might not know, in the spirit of creating sagas of good versus evil 
and villains that fit those stories. Michael Schill, the president of the University of Oregon, is a real like caterer to the 1%, particularly Phil Knight, who was this, you know, founder and CEO of Nike Corporation. But Schill went out of his way. Uh, I can't remember how many years ago this was, but went out of his way in response to a student protest that happened on the university campus to calling his students fascist for silencing free speech in an op-ed for the New York Times. Whoa. Talk about scumbag. I mean, the guy used his perch to get an op-ed published in the New York Times to call his like 18 to 22-year-old undergrad <laughs> students fascists for protest like for i don't even remember what the protest was about for but for claiming that they were like the real fascists for silencing free speech yeah he's also bullied we had uh we, we reached out to the local political apparatus and he bullied the one of the council members on the city council of springfield uh, uh, he sent a letter to Shill, and then Shill sent the letter to the mayor and CC'd this guy and CC'd the um, rest of the council and said, do you see what your council people are doing without your approval? Like, I can't believe you do this sort of thing. And like CC'd all of these different people. And of course we got hold of that. And so we said, look, Shill is trying to bully an elected representative. Like, that's not okay. <laughs> He's incredibly thin-skinned, and so I'd probably have a lot of fun trying to figure something out that would bug him. Well, uh, I think it's probably a good time to try to wrap this conversation up. And uh, something we did on the first go-around that I think would be fun to replicate. We just shared, each of us, our favorite things from these readings and why as a kind of coda to the episode. So would folks be open to doing that again? Okay, so favorite things from these readings you know for me honestly it really was like the advice for rookie organizers and the semantic drills i think that those are things i remember when i first read this book i took it to heart so seriously that i hand wrote the advice for rookie organizers and tacked it on the office door of our uh, union office because that was what she said they did at 1199 so they just had like handwritten versions of it but outside of that i really like in her emphasis on semantics and how we talk about our union versus the union. Uh, the quote that the 1199 organizers ask workers at the beginning of a campaign is, are there two sides or three in a workplace fight? I really like that quote because the emphasis for them is on getting people to understand that they, they are the union, the workers are the union, therefore it's boss versus workers. There's two sides. And one of the classic boss narratives against unions and trying to like quash unions as they organize is that unions are a third party coming in external from you all trying to like create noise and problems and disruptions and get in the way of our good relationship and our good HR relationship. So I like that the emphasis is on like highlighting that there's two sides because you're the union. But at the same time, McAlevey highlights how the unions that lose sight of this and are, are the ones that are guilty of creating this, like, the credence to this narrative. You know, the fact that there are unions that come in with this like, top-down model that's growth-driven and revenue-driven rather than worker power-driven, like Andy Stern did and like the case study in this chapter where you can broker backdoor deals and, like, do an advocacy model to, like, gain union recognition, but there's no, like, power given to the workers in that experience. 
And those unions are far too many. Like there's far too many unions with resources and power to accomplish that style of organizing to become the third party in the room. And that's why I like so much about it is like taking seriously the idea that unions are for workers. And if you're a staffer, like I am, then you better behave like the union is for workers. And if you're a union member, take power over your union, particularly if you have staffers trying to like interrupt the process and manipulate in an unaccountable way, fight them, organize against them, out with them by reading this book and uh, using the models within. So that, that was my favorite part. Who would like to go next? I think my favorite part, it's not like a very specific quote or anything, but I think my favorite part is just, the again, the way that Jane, she has a really good way of capturing people's bravery and confidence. Uh, so the core, uh, which is the um, rank and file caucus and slate that eventually won, she really captured their desire, their need, their bravery to stand up for their colleagues in a way that's really compelling to me in a way that has made me read all of the rest of her books in the way that she can just, that's what we need. We need people to be brave and to be able to stand up and say, no, we're done with this. We can't take this anymore, right? Again, I'm referring to communicating to the workers that there's no salvation beyond their own power. And in that is so empowering. I just want everybody to know that they have a lot of power, that they're really incredible and they have... (laughs) (laughs) everyone's got really compelling things to say in a very unique way and uh, i think that that there's a power in that that jane is able to capture in her narratives on analysis of these different locals and unions winning big and raising hell and raising expectations what about you andrea what would you like to share as your favorite part of the readings so my favorite part is as i was reading chapter three I was thinking about, and I've, I've thought for a while about my uh, my good friend Bridger Egbert. May he be partying out there. It's hard right now. Good, good, good friend. Long time. I went back uh, to Kansas not too long ago, and I was talking about all this union stuff I'm doing, and and he's like, oh, you know, I've seen some rather bad unions, you know, some really corrupt ones where they take your money, then they don't fight for you, blah, 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 blah. You know, I'm here trying to defend unions, and I'm a union gal. I come, you know, I'm reading this and I'm reading all of the stuff about SEI, you know, just like the very different approaches in SEIU and how I forget exactly where because I didn't underline it. But, you know, someone was saying that, you know, the turnout was low for sessions and for meetings because they weren't addressing the real daily concerns, which were staffing, right, which were having the number of staff present in a nursing home. And that wasn't what was being talked about at these at these meetings in the more top heavy non-deep organized uh, SEIU. And just seeing that there's the fact that Jane is able to paint pictures of unions that aren't always great. And to be honest with the history that we are not all saints and saviors, we're not all stewards of salvation, that sometimes as a union movement, it is messy. And sometimes not all union locals or union nationals are held in high regard by their members. You know, I'm trying to find a way to say as, as best I can. And so, you know, to loop it back, I remember telling my friend Bridger, no, unions are great. No, unions are great. But I think what Bridger was really telling me as someone who does do sheetrock and carpentry work that, yeah, I mean, they're probably, in your experience, there probably have been some unions that validity to that experience, that they do take your dues and they don't stick up for you. And uh, 
I hope to one day be able to model to Bridger and to show him, uh, you know, find a carpenter's union in a, in a local union in his area that is willing to do that. So I think it, it, it gives me some humility that unions aren't the silver bullet, but some unions better than others. Something I'll share just really quick as we finish here is, um, you know, recently moving back to the East Coast, I had a conversation with this longtime elected uh, labor leader just talking to me about like kind of the terrain, things to know about the area. And something he said to me really struck me. I just didn't think about it living on the East Co- uh, the West Coast for so long organizing was if there's not a union that already exists in this facility, you got to ask yourself why. And there's a few different scenarios why. And one of them could be that it was mobbed up. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> it's exactly the story of like what we're talking about. Like either they had a bad experience with a different union or it was mobbed up or the boss like crushed it, right? Those were his three examples. But, you know, like what you're talking about is um, needing more examples of the unions that do it right and the workers that take power over their own unions and organize towards victories. And I think that this book really goes a long way in helping us get there. I think we'll end it. Uh, Just for listeners to know, we're going to keep doing these conversations till we finish the book. Maybe we'll pick another book in the future if we can keep this energy up. And the next chapters are going to be five and six on Smithfield Foods and Make the Road New York. So pretty good stuff. Thanks so much, comrades, for joining us on this third episode of Comrades Read Together and talking about No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age by Jane McLeavy. We had Ellen Kress, former president of GTFF, current executive council officer in AFT Oregon as our guest today, and Andrea Haverkamp, current president the Coalition of Graduate Employees, AFT Local 6069. Thanks, y'all. Thank you so much. Thanks.